So I want to welcome you to the house of God. Today is a very important message. It's a message that I have not found much coverage for. And so a lot of the research I had to do for this message uh, has been very much... I felt very alone doing the research for this message. Thankfully... This topic came up during one of my seminary classes about a year and a half ago where my professor, who is very well-educated, Ivy League schools, a very smart man, one of the, one of the superstars uh, of one of the megachurches here in Korea, he vehemently opposed my view of having a support for the Jews. And having a support and believing that the land of Israel in the Middle East right now, that it has something to do with God's plans uh, for the future and for the end times. And so as I was kind of taking it for granted that most Christians believe that, uh, he strongly opposed and then told me to back it up from Scripture. And off the top of my head, I know that Romans 9 through 11 it's a very clear exposition of God's election of Israel and what that means for Israel's future. And so I quoted Romans 11. I tried to argue from that. He put me on the spot. I didn't really have a good exegetical um, support for it. And then he threw at me a passage from Galatians where it says, there's neither In Christ, there is neither Jew uh, nor Gentile or Jew nor Greek, whatever, right? And he was like, you can't take Romans 11 and try to support your view. You got to take the whole of scripture. Show me the whole of scripture. Write your final paper on this. Why don't you write your final? If you feel this strongly about a Christian, you should write your final paper on it. And you know, I'm a very argumentative person. So I was going to, I was going toe to toe until he said, write your final paper. I was like, I, I ain't going to write my final paper on this. <laughs> going to mark it up in red and, and give me a low grade. I, I, I'm not doing that. And the funny thing is, as much I was strongly opposed to doing that, uh, the Lord led, it, led me in my heart to write the paper on this topic. Because uh, as I did a little bit of research, I realized that not much is written about this topic in the church. Uh, dispensationalists write about it quite frequently because it's connected to their beliefs. But other than that, outside of dispensationalists, the writing for it has been fairly weak. So I had to do quite a bit of research for this. And so I'm going to present some of my findings today. This is my fifth sermon in my sermon series on the end times. And the title of the sermon is called The Future of Israel. Now, uh, I've got to tell you right away, I'm going to go over an hour today. I know that I've gone over an hour pretty much every week I said that I'm not going to go over an hour. Today, I'm going to go over an hour. I'm sorry if you're a newcomer, you're used to short sermons, but welcome to New Philly. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll stay with me the whole time. I'm trusting that you will. Let's start with some Jewish stereotypes. How many of you guys, you grew up in neighborhoods with a fairly large or fairly significant population of Jews? Yeah? 
Okay, maybe about two-fifths of you grew up with Jews around. How many of you guys, you never even met a Jew? You never even met a Jew? Don't even know what they're like? All right, put your hands down. You know, I grew up in the city of Philadelphia, and in my elementary school, we had like one Jew per each class, each grade. There was only one or two Jews. And my elementary school got more and more ghetto as each year went by. And I think by grade five, there were pretty much no Jews in my school. They all moved out. Actually, even when they were coming to my school, they didn't live in the city of Philadelphia. They were actually living in the suburbs with a fake address in the city of Philadelphia because they thought my school was a quality school. But it got more and more ghetto. <laughs> so they all left. So I, didn't, I wasn't really exposed to too many Jews in high school. You know, they, they were more of the popular crowd. And I told you that I was a floater, right? And so I met a few Jewish friends, start to find out about some of the reputations that Jews had. And then I learned about the Holocaust, which was a big awakening for me. I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and that really shook me up. And so that was pretty much my exposure to Jews. But my understanding is some of the stereotypes of Jews is, one, that they're very rich, And some people think that the reason why they're so rich is because they're penny pinchers. They're cheap. If you check, uh, back in the days of payphones, if you check the coin collecting portion on the bottom of the uh, payphone, you know, people used to joke around that Jews always check that wherever they go, wherever they go, they check the payphone if there's any change that somebody left behind. All right. I'm just telling you what I heard. I'm not saying this is what I perpetuated. This is what I heard. Also, they're very exclusive, maybe a little bit elitist. They have big noses. You know, their last names are very, very similar. You know, Cohen. Uh, you know, Steven Spielberg is also a Jew. Adam Sandler. Actually, there's a lot of famous celebrities who are actually Jews. And they're very successful. Now... Although we have these stereotypes that we can laugh at today, you know, they all wear uh, yarmulkes and celebrate Hanukkah, and some of them smoke their marijuana. That's from Adam Sandler's song. Um, Although we have these stereotypes today, the stereotypes in church history were actually far worse. And so I'm going to touch upon that later in my sermon today. Now, for much of of church history, Christians have argued and disagreed on many issues. Baptism, communion, eschatology, predestination. You know, they've argued over a lot of issues. But one doctrine that has enjoyed almost universal appeal for most of church history is something called supersessionism. Everybody say supersessionism. If you can spell that. John Westfall, you might want to put that up on the PowerPoint just so that people learn how to spell this. It's super, and then it's S-E-S-S-I-O-N-I-S-M, supersessionism. Now, the English word supersede comes from the English word supersede. Supersede, according to Webster's Dictionary, means to cause to be set aside, to force out as inferior, to take the place or position of, to displace in favor of another, 
Okay, that's the word supersede, and that's where we get supersessionism from. This is probably the first time you're hearing this word. Because when I did my research, it was my first time hearing this word. Supersessionism is the belief that the church essentially takes the place of Israel as the people of God with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ comes, he establishes the church, and the church replaces, displaces Israel as the people of God. Now, the church has presumed that this leaves Israel with no role or function in God's future redemptive plans. They believe that with the fall of Jerusalem, when the city of Jerusalem and the temple was completely destroyed by Romans, that that was a fulfillment and a vivid imagery that the Jews have no longer a function in God's redemptive plans. A more common term for this belief is called replacement theology. Everybody say replacement theology. Although some of its proponents, they prefer the term fulfillment theology. Uh, it's pretty much the same thing. It's called supersessionism. Despite its widespread popularity, some scholars believe that supersessionism's undisputed days are over. Especially since the Holocaust. Biblical scholars have been taking a hard look at supersessionism to see if this traditional view has enjoyed its great popularity with good reason. Now, there's a few things that I got to clear up for you. Number one, it must be established that people who agree on the same millennial views do not necessarily agree on the issue of Israel's future and redemptive uh, role in redemptive God's redemptive plans. Okay, they don't necessarily agree about the Jews just because they're both premillennialists or postmillennialists. Second, there are two main issues involving Israel's future. One is a future salvation of Israel. That many ethnic Jews in the future, there's going to be a mass salvation of Jews in the future. The second issue, major issue, is regarding the nation of Israel as a geopolitical entity. The restoration of the Israeli state. That's the second issue. So one is the future salvation of Israelites. And two is the restoration of the Israeli state. Now, all supersessionists are in agreement about the future restoration of Israel. They believe that it's bogus. It's not biblical. There is no future restoration of the Israeli state. That's what most supersessionists agree on. But in regards to the future salvation of Israel, supersessionists are not always in agreement. Okay? So these are all things that you guys should be aware of. Now, for people in here that are not so familiar with the Bible or you're new to Christianity, let me explain a few terms for you. The term Hebrew is an early, early, early term for the Jews. Okay, Why? Because way back in the day, that was what they used to use. And we have a book in the New Testament called the Hebrews. Right? Hebrews pretty, is synonymous with Israel, which is synonymous with Jews. 
So in case you thought there are three different people groups, they're all the same. Now, this is where the concept of predestination comes in handy. Why are the Jews called the Jews? Why aren't they called the Israelites today? Okay, You have to understand the purpose of God's election. The Hebrews were called Hebrews most commonly and almost universally when they were in Egypt. Right? Uh, yeah, when they were in Egypt, even before that. Oh, no, yeah, okay. Actually, it's um, not clear where the term Hebrews came from. I actually asked my Old Testament professor. She was not sure. Okay, so I can't give you a good explanation on that. I'm sorry, I shouldn't touch that. I shouldn't touch that. All I know is it's popular and Jews still use it. Hebrews, okay? There's Hebrews and then Israel. Israel was the name that God gave Jacob after he wrestled with him at the Jabbok. And the thing with this is, Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham, and then Abraham had how many sons? At least, I mean, with Sarah, he only had one son. And his name was Isaac. So it's, God made it clear that his promise will be fulfilled through his son Isaac, which will be through his wife, Sarah, not through his servant girl, Ishmael, uh, Hagar and Ishmael, right? Now, after Isaac, how many children did Isaac have? Two. They were twins. Jacob and Esau. Who was born first? Esau was the firstborn. And in traditional uh, Near Eastern culture, I mean, ancient Near East culture, the firstborn has got all the uh, inheritance rights and all of the, you know, privileges. So it was an interesting thing when God came to Rebecca and told her that the older will serve the younger. And, and it was pretty much God's election was not on both brothers. It was upon Jacob. All right. And so Jacob gets chosen over Esau. Esau, actually, later on, some prophecies say Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Bang! They were twins. They were brothers. What's up, God? Okay. Now, the interesting thing is, how many children did Jacob have? He had 12 from four different women. Now, this does not promote polygamy. If you know the story behind what happened, all right, Jacob just wanted Rachel. All right? There was a lot of manipulation that happened from the in-laws. And next thing you know, Jacob, you know, had to have children with four women. Okay. Anyway, he had 12 sons. Now, even out of these 12 sons, many of God's promises continued. But as human nature, the fallenness of humanity started to manifest and people started to turn to idolatry. God chose to continue his plan of salvation, not through all 12 of the tribes, but through the tribe of Judah. Now, what lineage was Jesus born of? He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. David was from the lineage of Judah. And that's why they are called Jews today. I spent way too much time on that. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, Anti-Semitism. I don't know why they use, but it's popular. Right? Anti-Semitism pretty much means anti-Jewish. Okay, And so if everybody... We'll be on the same page from here on. I think it will be very helpful as I continue this uh, study of the future of Israel. Now, let me talk about three major redemption frameworks that the church has known. 
or the, that is popular today. Three major redemption frameworks. Redemption frameworks pretty much means uh, like a systematic explanation of how God has dealt with man and has saved man throughout history. Okay, there's three major ones. One's called replacement theology. Second is called covenant theology. And third is called dispensationalism. Last week, I touched upon dispensationalism. Today, I'm going to cover the first two and summarize dispensationalism for you very quickly. Do not feel mm, intimidated by this. I'm going to explain it very clearly right now. Let's start with replacement theology. Replacement theology is an informal redemption framework that has been held to by various church fathers and leaders, including the Roman Catholic Church and Martin Luther. It basically goes like this. God chose the people of Israel via Abraham, and he made a covenant with them. That covenant was continually renewed through Moses and then with David. But the Israelites continued to break the covenant. And after much patience and grace, God decided to reject and punish Israel for her disobedience and lack of fruit and raised up a new Israel, namely the church. It is called replacement theology because the church replaces Israel as God's people on the earth. Now, replacement theology is called punitive supersessionism. Punitive supersessionism because they generally believe that Israel has been punished for her disbelief and idolatry. And so it's a punitive form in which the church supersedes Israel. Now, replacement theologians generally believe that there is a discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God because the punishment uh, and the disobedience of Israel caused God to reshift his focus now upon the church. All right? So there's a discontinuity. Let's talk about covenant theology. Everybody say covenant theology. And I actually want to give big thanks to a guy named Michael Vlock. He gave a really concise summary that I'm using here. Uh, covenant theology is a formal redemption framework that views God's salvation plans for mankind through the outworking of three covenants. Does anyone have any idea what these three covenants are? Okay. All right. I don't. I cannot understand what you're mumbling. All right. I'll name them right now because most people don't know what these are. First is the covenant of works. Second is the covenant of grapes. And third is the covenant of redemption. Listen here. Historically, covenant theology was birthed out of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, particularly by those in the Reformed tradition. Zwingli played an important role in its development, and covenant theology found its most, most mature expression in the Westminster Confession of Faith released in 1647. We, many people in here who are Presbyterian of the Presbyterian denomination, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster documents are are critical, crucial, central points of what we believe. Uh, And so it's an important document. Now, covenant theology goes like this. According to covenant theology, three implicit, that word is important, three implicit covenants are the overarching framework 
for understanding God's purposes in salvation and the explicit covenants that are mentioned in Scripture. If you look for these three covenants that I just mentioned, you will not find these terms in Scripture. Why? Because they are implicit. The explicit ones are the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant God made with Moses, the covenant God made with David. So some people who don't like covenant theology will argue that it's not biblical because it's not mentioned in the Bible. But as we all know, we all believe in something that's not never mentioned in the Bible called the Trinity. Why? Because it's clearly implicit in Scripture. Sometimes implicit teachings are, are much more clear than explicit teachings. And a careful study of the whole Bible will bring forth that clarity. Now, The first is the covenant of works. According to the Westminster Confession, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, to his children, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Thus, the covenant of works was made with Adam before the fall and included a promise of eternal life upon the condition of perfect obedience and the threat of death upon disobedience. So God implicitly made a covenant of works with Adam when he told him, don't you dare touch that tree. If you will obey me, there was no mention of death. You will, you will live forever pretty much. He had access to the tree of life, right? Second is a covenant of grace. According to covenant theology, Adam violated the covenant of works. And since he was the federal head, the federal representative of mankind, he put the entire human race under the consequences of sin. As a result, God then instituted another covenant, which is called the covenant of grace. Now, most of us, when we think of the covenant of grace, we think of what? We think of the coming of Jesus. We think it started 2,000 years ago, but covenant theologians are saying the covenant of grace started the moment after the fall took place. Now, I I haven't told you what I believe yet. So, you know, you can uh, amen, whatever you want, but I'm just presenting the views right now, okay? (laughs) Now, this is uh, the covenant of grace is made between God and the elect. After the fall in which salvation is given to those who trust in Jesus Christ by faith. New Testament believers, we look back onto the cross of Christ. Old Testament believers were looking forward to the Messiah, to the Savior. The same Jesus Christ. In regards to this covenant of grace, the Westminster Confession of Faith states this. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant... The Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. For covenant theologians, the covenant of grace is believed to be the underlying covenant for all of the explicit covenants found in Scripture. Mosaic, Abrahamic, Davidic, all those explicit covenants 
are actually being carried out by the implicit covenant of grace. As a result, there is a continuity that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's a continuity between the various covenants found in Scripture because they are all simply manifestations of the covenant of grace. So, in other words, God may make a covenant with Abraham. He may make a covenant with Moses. He may come make a covenant with David. But they are not different covenants. They are simply manifestations of the original covenant of grace. That's what a covenant theologian is arguing. Now, third is the covenant of redemption. Many covenant theologians affirm a third covenant. This is an agreement that was made between the members of the Trinity in eternity past to appoint the Son to be the head and redeemer of the elect. The Son voluntarily agrees to this plan, and according to covenant theology, the Father commissioned the Son to be the Savior. The, Savior, the sons accepted the mission agreeing to fulfill all righteousness by obeying the law of God perfectly. Why was it so important for Jesus to obey the law of God so perfectly? Why? Because God made a previous covenant of works that required perfect obedience to his word. Man failed at it, but the belief is that Jesus succeeded in fulfilling perfect obedience to the law. Although covenant theology and reformed theology are not synonymous, many covenant theologians have traditionally affirmed the reformed theology. Thus, they hold to a high view of scripture and a high view of God's sovereignty. Now, listen to this next part. Covenant covenant theology describes the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament to be one of type and anti-type, of shadow and reality. For example, Old Testament sacrifices, killing animals and goats and lambs, was a shadow, a type of the reality of Christ's sacrifice once for all on the cross. So a common implication of this type of thinking is that the nation of Israel was a type of God's people, an Old Testament type of God's people that has now been superseded by a superior anti-type, namely the church, the, the true spiritual Israel. So according to covenant theology, the true Israel is the church, and thus any promises to Israel about a land and a temple, they find fulfillment a spiritual fulfillment in the church. Covenant theology is also sometimes referred to as federal theology. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Man, I've lost half of y'all. It's okay. You can listen to this message again. I'm trying to come off. I, I've noticed when I re-listened to some of my previous messages in the four uh, sermons that preceded this one, that I come off a little bit condescending. Or I come off a little bit... Um, like I'm treating you like, like 12-year-olds. And you know what? That annoyed me. I mean, I annoyed myself when I listened to it. And so I'm trying to be patient and not to be so hotly argumentative, but to present all of these things so that when you have more time, you can go listen to it 
and you will have a clear exposition of all these different viewpoints, okay? So I just cover replacement theology. That's the first redemption framework. Covenant theology. Now I'm going to talk about dispensationalism. I kind of touched upon it last week. I'm just going to summarize it very quickly right now. Dispensationalism believes that God has structured his redemption plan for mankind through various dispensations. Seven of them. I mentioned them last week. Dispensationalists believe that God's Old Testament promises to Israel are only for Israel and they will be fulfilled fully at the millennium. Dispensationalists believe that the church is not incorporated into Israel as God's people, but they believe that the church is a new organism altogether. So, it's a completely different redemption framework than replacement theology or covenant theology. Now, let me point out some of the interesting um, implications of these beliefs. Replacement theology. Replacement theology emphasizes discontinuity. Why? Because God had his own people. Those people disobeyed. So, God started all over again. That's the kind of theme. Now, it's informal because people don't articulate it this clearly all the time. But that's the rhetoric. That's the tone by which replacement theologians, which have been the vast majority of church leaders, have expressed their views. And they'll quote certain Bible passages that seemingly support replacement theology. You know, where, you know, you see Jesus is like, you know, approaching Jerusalem and weeping over Jerusalem. And, and it's like, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, if you knew the time of your coming, if you knew the, if you knew who was coming to you, if only you would turn from your ways, you know, and, and, and Jesus also uses very harsh rhetoric in, in the book of Matthew. In fact, some people, some liberal theologians accuse Matthew of being anti-Semitic, that it was a later document written much later than is presupposed, and that the gospel writer of Matthew had an anti-Semitic agenda that he really hated the Jews. Right? It's very ironic because we all believe that Matthew is a gospel to the Jews. Right? It never says kingdom of God. It always says kingdom of heaven. Why? Because Jews never said the name of God. You guys know that's the difference, right? The kingdom of God will never appear in Matthew because it was written to a Jewish audience. Uh, so replacement the. the Theology has discontinuity, and we call that punitive supersessionism. Covenant theology believes in a continuity. They believe that God's redemption has been going on from the beginning of time, from the, from the moment of the fall. Even before the fall, God had this whole redemption plan sovereignly set out. And so there's a continuity, and, but most covenant theologians do not believe in a future for Israel. Especially the restoration of the Israeli state. They're not open to that. So they are called economic supersessionists. This does not mean that they're interested in the financial economy. It just simply means in the economy of God's salvation that the people of Israel has fulfilled her role. And now the church is, it's now the church's time to rise up. So instead of replacing Israel, the church simply is a fulfillment of all that Israel was supposed to be. You guys catch that? 
When I say things like that, does that make you feel condescending? Does that make you feel like I'm condescending to you? Did you catch that? Are you getting it? Don't you understand? What's wrong with you? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I'm sorry. If I ever give off that tone, that is not my heart. All right. I probably have done it numerous times, though. Dispensationalists believe that the church began on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because they believe it's a completely new organism. Remember how I mentioned how they believe that the church age that we're living in right now is a parenthetical age in which God's plan of redemption for Israel was put on pause. And now it's the parenthetical age of the church. And then when the church gets raptured out of the tribulation, now God presses the unpaused button on Israel and continues his redemption plan for Israel. So they believe that the church began on the day of Pentecost. Covenant theology believes that the church began in the Old Testament. So when Reformed theologians talk about the church, they're not just talking about Koreans and Chinese and white people and black people. Reformed theologians are talking about every saint from the New Testament and Old Testament era that has ever lived and ever will live. So they see the church inclusive of all those people. Now, when you think of church, have you ever thought of that concept? That the church, there's only one, one people of God. In heaven, there's only one people of God. Like when you get to heaven, and God's not being like, all right, all the Jews go over here and all the Gentiles over here. Now, when you get to heaven, there's only one people of God. And they've all been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so covenant theologians believe that the church began in the Old Testament. Re- replacement theologians it is unclear where the church began because, like I said, this is an informal redemption framework. And so different people have implied it, but they haven't really sat down and systematically taught it. And that's why we're thankful to uh, all the Reformed theologians and the Westminster Confession of Faith because they systematized it, wrote it out, and then dis- uh, distributed copies of it. So now we can have it and on record. You know? And I hope that New Philly can do that also in the future. That we will articulate our beliefs, back it up with scripture, print it, publish it, and put it out there. You know, and so that our future children, you know, in case Jesus, in case the great tribulation and Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, can have some of these documents on hand. Now, let me preach a little bit. In the study of redemption frameworks, what's sad is that many of these redemption frameworks have been unexamined by Christian leaders. But this issue is very important, especially today, because it directly affects the Christian view that we have toward modern-day Jews. In light of the Holocaust 70 years ago, and in light of the growing anti-Semitism in the entire world, there has been a growing, growing concern for critical thinking in this area of redemption frameworks. Because a person's redemption frameworks and their perspective on supersessionism are not only important to eschatology, your end time view, but it's also important for how we perceive modern day Jews and how we perceive their future. So let me point out one major but little known consequence 
of an unbalanced redemption framework. One famous replacement theologian that I mentioned earlier was Martin Luther. Martin Luther is considered the father of the Reformation, the guy who started it all, the guy who stood through thick and thin for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for sola scriptura, for sola fide, sola gratia, all of the major pillars of the Reformation, Martin Luther stood very strongly for. We admire him. But one thing that people don't know about him is his view toward the Jews. In Luther's younger years, he was very hopeful that he could reach the Jews with the gospel. But as he got older, he seemed to lose patience with them. And he nurtured a hostility toward them. Because like they are today, they were very successful in Germany. And as he got older, he seemed to lose his patience. Uh, And he wrote this document in 1543 called On the Jews and Their Lies. Listen. In it, he proposed to set fire to their synagogues and schools, to take away their homes, forbid them to pray or teach, or even to utter God's name. Luther wanted to be, quote, rid of them and requested that the government get involved. He requested pastors and preachers to follow his example of issuing warnings against the Jews. He goes so far as to claim that we are not at fault. No, he goes so far as to claim we are at fault for not slaying them, for avenging the death of Jesus Christ. Now, this was not an uncommon belief. Like I said, supersessionism and especially replacement theology, a punitive version of it, where you believe that the Jews were punished. The reason why Jerusalem fell was because they were punished and they've been permanently displaced. That view was enjoyed undisputed agreement in the church. So that what Martin Luther here is, is articulating wasn't that uncommon. It wasn't a surprise. Unfortunately, in the 1930s and 40s, Hitler and the Nazi government, government quoted from Martin Luther as they went on to exterminate 6 million Jews. If you read Mein Kampf and you read uh, some of Hitler's writings, Martin Luther played a great contributing factor in the hostility and the attempted genocide of the Jewish people in Europe. You, know, you ever wonder why the Germans were so cooperative? You know? If somebody rose up today, let's say Louis wanted to start a cult. <laughs> and he rises up and he as a Canadian he says, you know, you know, all non French speaking Canadians are fake. They're scum of the earth. They must be we must rid ourselves of them. Montreal forever. You know, and he, and he as a French Canadian, he tries to rally people around him to go and systematically destroy all non-French speaking Canadians. Now, wouldn't you think he would have a hard time following, uh, finding a following? So how is it that in Hitler and the Nazis were so easy? It was so easy for them to get the entire nation 
to cooperate, including the pastors. Now, Germany was not an atheist nation, y'all. Germany was a birthplace of the Reformation. In Germany, everybody got water baptized as an infant. Everybody grew up in the church. How is it that in Germany, everybody was willing to hail Hitler and systematically kill off six million Jews? It was because of Martin Luther's supersessionist views. It has spread throughout the entire nation. And these stereotypes were far worse than anything you might hear about today. And that was the breeding ground for Nazi Germany to control the German people and get their cooperation in the extermination of the Jews. So do you now think that redemption frameworks are pretty important? Or do you still not want to think about it? Do you ever wonder why, out of all the ethnic groups in the world, the Jews are the most commonly hated people group? We all know that the Muslim world hates the Jews. You guys know that the Muslim world hates the Jews, right? All the Arab countries and every Muslim in the world hates the Jews. When I did missions to Kazakhstan, I was sitting with young people who had good hearts, good, kind hearts, just wanted to learn English, were willing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything. But when it came to the Taliban and it came to the Jews, they were all unanimous. They wanted to see the Jewish state completely destroyed. They said the Jews have no right to be in that land. And they had no problem with killing them off to make it happen. Kazakhstan, a mild Islamic country. Can you imagine what it's like in Egypt, the anti-Semitism, in Iran? But have you ever wondered, it's not just the Muslim or Arab thing. It's a worldwide phenomenon. You know, even in the evangelical church, there is a strong anti-Semitism. Certain people you talk to in the church, they, they, they clothe it with a political interest in Palestinian Christians. Oh, those poor, oppressed Palestinian Christians. And you know what? We should have compassion to Palestinians that have been unjustly oppressed or displaced. But certain people would use that as a cover-up for their anti-Semitism. You talk about the Jews being in the, in the, in the, in the Middle East, and they just get furious. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, what's up? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fellow brother in Christ. Why are you coming at me so strong? I look like you're going to pick up a knife and stab me or something. Why is there such a strong anti-Semitism? You know, you know what my theory is? This is my theory. This is not, you know, any particular exegetical support. You know, just my, off the top of my head. You know why there's such a strong anti-Semitism in the entire world? Because it's a satanic thing. It's a satanic phenomenon. Satan hates the people of God. And those who were first, the people of God that went before us, was an ethnic people group called the Israelites. And Satan has done everything to destroy this people group, to come against this people group. 
As I really believe anti-Semitism is a satanic spiritual warfare phenomenon. And if you do not have a strong redemption framework, and if you do not know where you stand in regards to supersessionism, you can also easily slip into that mindset. You know, as much as uh, Americans, you know, really look down on what happened at the Holocaust and are greatly troubled and, and heartbroken over what happened, Americans didn't do anything to stop it. Let's just be real. It's not like America didn't know what was happening there. They did nothing to stop it until they were forced into World War II. All those years, systematic extermination of, of, of the Jews, they did nothing about it. It's an important issue, y'all. Now, the rest of my message here, I'm going to try to break it down the best I can. But let me uh, just look at a few texts. I'm going to read out loud to you, and I'll tell you to turn later to Romans 11. But right now, let me uh, quote a few verses that I believe support a future for Israel. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. He quotes, If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, some people might say, well, this is talking about spiritual Israel. It's talking about the church. But why would God use the words... Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation. Oh, you know, we're a royal nation. Oh, okay, you want to just figuratively dismiss all of this. Okay. Well, I, I believe this text is a clear articulation of the promise of God that he will not forsake his people Israel forever. And he will not allow them to be annihilated from off the face of the earth, even though so many nations want them completely destroyed. God has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses, to David. He's made promises that he intends to continue to keep, even though they do not believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Even though they have rejected him, even though they persecuted Christians in the early church history, despite all of that. God is saying, I'm faithful. They will not cease to be a nation before me. And so for people like Martin Luther, they say, well, they shouldn't really even exist as a people group. You know, they either need to believe in the gospel or you know what? They just need to be scattered from out of our land. Because you know what? They're taking up all our jobs. They're making all this money. You know, Jews were known for usury, which is like lending money with interest. And back in those days, remember I taught this? Usury was seen as evil in the church. That all changed after the Industrial Revolution, but back then, lending money on interest was considered an evil practice. Jews loved doing that because they wanted to get rich. And so, you know, you could see the kind of different reasons why Martin Luther might have had that hostility grow in him. Um, let me read Jeremiah 30, verse 3. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah. And that's talking about the northern kingdom, Israel, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Because at one point, the nation of Israel was split in two. 
I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. You know, after the Jews were punished for their idolatry, you know that the northern kingdom was called Samaria or it's called Israel in certain chronological points in the Bible. The northern kingdom is called Israel or Samaria. That's where we get the word Samaritan. The northern kingdom got judged first. So these foreign nations came through and destroyed the northern kingdom. The vast majority of the ten tribes of Israel. Most of them died, perished. And up until that point, they were so syncretistic. They had mixed their worship of Yahweh with paganism so much that it was difficult for them to continue a pure form of the worship of Yahweh. And that would have easily happened to the southern kingdom as well. If it was not for the purpose of God in election, if it was not for the grace of God, southern kingdom would have probably done the same thing. But you know what? Despite all their idolatry, God was patient with them a little longer, and then God judged them as well. After that, they lost their land. They were exiled and scattered throughout all Asia Minor. And then we read in Ezra and Nehemiah, what happens? They return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. And although they rebuilt it, did you ever notice they never took possession of the land? Which means this prophecy has yet to find its fulfillment. Well, at least it wasn't fulfilled 2,000 years ago. If you guys know, on May 14th, 1948, Israel, a people group, a nation that had not really existed as a separate entity, as a separate state, as a nation, for nearly 2,500 years, they had not had their own land, they, had, they were not its own government entity, But on May 14, 1948, the United Nations declared Israel to be a new sovereign state. What's interesting is Isaiah 66 verse 8 talks about something very interesting. Isaiah 66 verse 8 says, who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. In other words, on May 14th, 1948, Israel as a state, as a nation was born in one moment, in one day. 2,500. Can you imagine that? Imagine we as Koreans, most of us in here were Koreans, right? We as Koreans pretend that... We're like the Hmong people. You guys watch Gran Torino? You guys know about the Hmong people? Hmong people, these are, these are people in the Thailand, Laotian, India borders. And uh, they're a very specific ethnic group, but they don't have a land. And so they're, you know, they're, 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 they're scattered all over the earth, especially in America, and they do gangster things. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what if Koreans were like the Hmong people and we didn't have our own land? How many millions of people here in South Korea? 40 million. How many in uh, North Korea? Probably a little less than 20 million now or something like that. 60 million Koreans with all of the immigrants in the world, maybe 60, whatever, 63 million Koreans. 
and we don't have a land. We eat kimchi in Germany. We're eating bibimbap in St. Louis. But we don't have a land to return to for 2,500 years. And then one day, the United Nations declares that the peninsula here in Asia is now belongs to the Korean people. How would you feel about that? Wouldn't that be pretty significant? The Germans try to annihilate you for the previous two decades, and now you have your own land. You see how emotional it must have been for the Jews when they heard this? Even though these Jews still continue to reject Christ as a Savior. Imagine as a people group, they've been preserved for this long, and they get to go back to their own land. And as they have settled in that land, they have been fiercely opposed, met with all kinds of terrorism, met with all kinds of opposition, political, militarily. And everywhere they go, there are nations that want to possess nuclear weapons to destroy this people group, destroy Jews from being in Israel. They just want to completely annihilate them. And this is what Israel faces. This is what the Jews face to this day. So I think it's important that Jeremiah 30, verse 3, where God says here, right, I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, and I will bring them back to the land I gave to their forefathers, and they shall take possession of it. I think it's pretty significant that this passage was fulfilled in 1948. Meaning that what looked like Old Testament prophecies that are spiritually fulfilled in spiritual Israel, which is the church. We're supposed to spiritually and figuratively and symbolically somehow fulfill all these different prophecies that were originally made to Israel and Judah. We're supposed to fulfill them. And this one gets literally fulfilled in Israel. Doesn't that make you think maybe there's some other Old Testament prophets that are like that? Now, the dispensationalist argues they're all like that. Any that appear like that, they're all like that. They only can be fulfilled in Israel. And I'm standing over here and I disagree. That's not balanced. Why? Because when we interpret scripture, what did I say last week? The New Testament must take precedence over the Old Testament. The New Testament must help to interpret or even reinterpret the Old Testament. If that is not your system of interpretation, you're going to fall into a lot of creative and speculative beliefs. Now, dispensationists say, wherever possible, every Old Testament prophecy for Israel is going to be fulfilled only in Israel. And I'm over here saying, some of them will. I think some of them do pertain to Israel. Now, this is a hard stance to take because it's been mostly do or die until now. Everyone turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Now, a lot of scholars would say that Romans chapter 9 through 11 is the central document in which the Apostle Paul articulates his view of God's plan for the nation of Israel and God's future plan for the nation of Israel. It is like the central place where you can find teaching on it. 
Now, I can't read the whole three chapters. I'm going to read verses 1 through 24 of Romans 11. Check this out. Now, just to sum up verses, uh, chapters 9 and, and 10. In chapters 9 and 10, uh, Apostle Paul is in great anguish because his people, his ethnic people, the Jews, they are rejecting Christ. Now, remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And so initially, initially, he's going into the Jewish synagogues and he's preaching the gospel. What happens? They stone him. They plot to kill him. They go on these vows not to eat until they kill him. So Apostle Paul goes from city to city. And finally, he goes, man, forget y'all. Y'all don't want to I'm, I'm with you. I'm, 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 I'm fellow Jew. I'm, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I know where you're coming from. But look, you're wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jews just continue to punch him in his face. And so what Apostle Paul, he says, he shakes the dust off. He says, you know what? From now on, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. I think it's pretty obvious that God wants me to not focus on my own people. I didn't just focus on Gentiles because you know what? The Gentiles are coming to Christ by the tens of thousands. City by city. Multitudes of Gentiles who have never heard about the God of the Bible. It's turning to Jesus in faith. And so he does that. But somewhere in his ministry, he identifies that his heart is still in anguish for his own people. These are my people. You know what? I wish I had been cut off from Christ. I'll go to hell. I wish I'd go to hell than to see my, more of my people perishing. You know? It's there anyway. I paraphrased it. <laughs> and so this, this kind of brings up the rhetorical question. Well, if God made promises to Israel and they look like they are falling apart, how can we have any assurance that God's going to be faithful to the promises he's made to the Gentiles? He's made to the church. How can we have any guarantee, any assurance that God is going to be faithful to his promises for the church? And so the Apostle Paul need, needs to now... He needs to engage this question. So that's what he's doing. He's talking about what has exactly happened in regards to God's promises for Israel. Okay, read with me. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Let's talk about Israel. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept myself for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, 2,000 years ago, at that present time, there is a remnant of Jews. There is a remnant of Jewish Christians saved Chosen by grace. And so Paul is pretty much identifying himself as an example of a Jewish Christian. And that's an evidence that God's promise has not failed. That God has not rejected his people. He's not saving all of them, but he's still saving some of them. I keep reading here. Verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace will no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain it, what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, 
down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Keep reading. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more? This is a new idea he's introducing here. How much more will their full inclusion be mean? That's a new idea. If the hardening of the Jews and, the re- and their rejection is resulting in all this grace for the Gentiles, he's saying, how much more? Will, will, will it be beautiful when the, they're full inclusion, when, they, when they're fully included. There's a full inclusion, okay? All right, so check that out, okay? Verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Now he's talking now to the non-Jews. Inasmuch then, and this, he's talking to you right now, so listen to this. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I make much of my ministry in another translation. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. So he's talking about that chronological point in time 2,000 years ago. He's trying everything he can to bring Jews to salvation. And he knows, he's going, you know what? I'm just going to magnify my ministry to Gentiles. Maybe that will make them jealous. Right? So he can save some of them. Now check this out. For if their, uh, verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, oh snap, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Verse 18 is what many people do not see. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. What does that mean, the branches there? It's talking about the Jews. Look at verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off. These are Jews that have been hardened to the gospel, do not respond to the gospel. They are broken off from the people of God. And Apostle Paul says, you Gentiles... You think you're, you're coming to Christ because you're smarter, smarter than the Jews? Because you're better educated than the Jews? Because you're better looking than the Jews? No, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Keep listening. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Saying your whole religion is based upon what the Jews have established. Verse 19, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Uh, I have an interpretation for that, though. All right. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, and even if they, 
And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Meaning that the Jews, if they don't continue in their unbelief, one day they might be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. God can easily snap his finger and Jews will be coming to the altar to receive Christ in mass. He has the power to do that. Why? Because he's the God of election. He's the God of grace. He applies grace to a non-believer and that non-believer has zero chance of rejecting Christ. Verse 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits or in your own pride, I want you to understand this mystery. Paul is now presenting something that he calls a mystery. Meaning, he hasn't been sharing this everywhere he goes. And look at the mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I'm going to stop right there. Paul says, understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. So that the f- until, no, not, not so that, has come upon Israel until, meaning there's a chronological point. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know, there are scriptures in the New Testament that talk about a very particular number of the redeemed. That bothers a lot of people. I thought God, you know, he just, you know, sent Jesus and then tries to see how many people potentially will receive Christ. But what scripture a lot of times reveals in God's sovereignty is God actually knows the full number. He knows the number of Koreans that are going to come to Christ. In fact, he not only foreknows it, he has determined it. Does that bother you? It bothers most people. It does. Because it sounds very fatalistic. But that's what the scriptures is revealing. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Look at... um, Verse 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, Israel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, for their sake, they are loved still. And look at verse 29. A lot of charismatic Christianity quotes this verse to talk about spiritual gifts. But this verse is originally in the context of, A Paul's argument for Israel's future. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And he ends this chapter by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. Meaning, oh man, this is confusing. Oh man, what does all this mean? And Paul's just like, oh man. I had no idea either. But when this mystery came, I realized, oh, how great the riches And the wisdom of God. They're beyond searching out. I had no idea. I came before God and I said, why are my kinsmen, why are my fellow Jews not believing in Jesus? And God said, 
as a partial hardening upon them. So that the gospel will continue to go out to the Gentiles until there's a period of time, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I believe, and my whole paper was on uh, Romans eleven twenty six. My whole paper was actually on one verse. And what I argued for, there's different interpretations. Some people say, in this way, all Israel will be saved, meaning all Israel, spiritual Israel, all the church will be saved. Right? That's what one, one argument is. Another argument is all Israel means all of the saved Jews from throughout history will be saved. But those two things violate the context of Paul's rhetoric and argument. And so my paper, I argued that when, I, when it talks about all Israel will be saved, it's talking about some future mass salvation in which the hardening has now been lifted and Jews come to Christ by the multitudes. Because this word Israel here, here is only referred to in Romans 9 to 11 as the concept of spiritual Israel. That concept is only mentioned once. Everywhere else the word Israel is used from Romans 9 through 11 and everywhere a pronoun is used like they for the Israelites always refers to ethnic Israel. So for a person to say, well, you know, there was a concept of spiritual Israel mentioned earlier in these three chapters and uh, Paul is kind of returning to that. That doesn't make any sense. Why would Paul mention it and then use it for ethnic Israel, ethnic Israel, ethnic Israel, ethnic Israel and then, oh, boom, boom, spiritual Israel. I just said that doesn't make any exegetical logical sense. I can't, I can't, I'm not persuaded by that point. All right. Um, man, I have so many good things to say here, but I, gotta, I just got to wrap up, y'all. Um, Paul's argument pretty much here is pastoral as well as doctrinal. He's teaching the doctrine of election. And you guys now know that election is not just talking about predestination of individuals who are in the church. It was actually argued, firstly, in the context of God's promises. Have they failed for the Jews? That's where the doctrine of election, Paul brought it up to argue that no, God has not failed. His promises for Israel have not failed. It's just that in his mystery, he's working out a plan that nobody ever thought of. And if it didn't go this way, the gospel would probably not go out to the Gentiles, to the Chinese, to the Koreans. They will never get the gospel. And so, and then he says at the end, Pastore, he says, I talk to you Gentiles. Don't be arrogant. What happened when Martin Luther, in his replacement theology, and his anti-Semitism, and for most Christians throughout church history and their anti-Semitism, why, why, were, why did they look down on the Jews so much? Why not compassion that they are an unreached people group like any other group on the earth? Why? Because they had a pride and an arrogance. We are now the people of God. Not the Jews. The Jews are now rejected. They're dumb. Can they not see from their Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah? What a bunch of losers. Why can't they see the light? And that kind of arrogance and that pride was carried by much of the church. As a result of them not examining their redemption framework. And Paul, his pastority, if you were just read Romans 11 very carefully, Paul says, don't you dare be arrogant. Arrogant. 
Do you know what's happening to my people right now? This is not by coincidence. This is by God's design. My heart agonizes that God would design it this way. To the Jews belongs the covenants, the law. Jesus was a Jew. Do not be arrogant, you Gentiles. As much as I love you and I'm reaching you with the gospel, do not fool yourself. Do not get arrogant. In fact, there's going to come a time in the future when God's plan of salvation for Israel is going to be fulfilled in a way it's going to blow your mind. But in all of this, I cannot accuse God of wrongdoing. For he says in the scriptures, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will harden whom I will. For he says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up. Then I might display my glory. Why has God partially hardened the Jews for this period of time? The short answer is for God's glory. God is going to get the glory as objects of mercy. Realize just how awesome God's grace is because they stand before a multitude of people who are now God's objects of wrath. That's all there too. The objects of mercy don't know how much mercy they've received until they look back and they see what's happened to the objects of wrath. In all of this, give glory to God. Trust in his righteousness. You know, some, some of you, I may, I may have lost you completely and you might be like, well, what's all this? What, what, what does all this matter? Well, how does it all matter to me? It's very, it's very important because when, when we approach the end times, you're going to start seeing things happen that's going to mess up your theology if you haven't examined your theology. When you see things happen in the world, world's events, earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, that's already been happening. But as, you know, great tribulation events start happening and the beasts and the Antichrist, you know, all these different figures that are mentioned in Revelation. As they rise up and surprise, surprise, you didn't get raptured out of the tribulation. And you see God pouring out his wrath upon the earth while you're still on it. Your view of God's righteousness is going to get severely shaken unless you are strongly, soundly grounded in the biblical teaching. Of God's righteousness and sovereignty. God has compassion on whom he wills. And I'm sorry, but he also hardens whom he wills. The great Charles Spurgeon said said this. He actually was more of a covenant theologian. He actually had a very openness to the future salvation of Jews. Charles Spurgeon said this. Certainly, if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. I imagine that you cannot read the Bible without seeing clearly that there is to be an actual restoration of the children of Israel. For when the Jews are restored, the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in, Romans 11. And as soon as they return, then Jesus will come upon Mount Zion with his ancients gloriously. And the halcyon, I don't know what that word is. And the halcyon, hal, halcyon days of the millennium shall then dawn. 
Charles Spurgeon sounds like a premillennialist to me, if you ask me. He, he argued against dispensationalism, by the way, for most of his life, for all of his life. And as a very much respected Reformed theologian, Charles Spurgeon had an openness, meaning that he was not a supersessionist. He was a, what's called a non-supersessionist. He not only had an openness to the future salvation of Israel, he also believed that there would be a restoration of the Israeli state. Now, where does your pastor stand? Um, because this is unexamined and there are not many alternatives out there, redemption framework-wise, I think covenant theology makes a lot of sense. I know there's, it's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible, but I think it makes a lot. I'm most persuaded of covenant theology for most of their points, minus infant baptism and, uh, na, 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 and something else. Anyway. Infant baptism, man, it's real easy to prove in the Bible that infant baptism is not biblical and actually has a lot of downsides to doing infant baptism. But anyway, that's a different message. Where's your, where do your pastor stand? I'm a, I believe, I think the redemption framework of theology seems to make the most sense, but I do not take that shadow reality thinking, that type, anti-type thinking, and I, I do not apply that to Israel. Meaning, I do not think that Israel is just a type of the Old Testament people of God. And now that we have the real reality of the people of God in the church, that now we displace and completely permanently replace Israel. And that God has now permanently abandoned Israel. I do not apply that type of thinking of covenant theology to Israel. And I think neither should you because scripture prohibits you from doing that. In our Gentile understanding, it would seem strange for God to continue to have a future plan of redemption for the Jews. Why not just a future redemptive plan, just like any unreached people group? Why will he have a special one for the Jews? And it might seem strange to us, but the truth of the matter is the ethnic people of Israel are still loved by God. And as we read here in Romans eleven twenty-eight, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Because God liked David so much. He said, man, I like you so much. I'm never going to forsake your descendants. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't you, love, wouldn't you like it for God to like you that much? Well, he did that for David. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Although the church has fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies about Israel, I believe that there are several irrevocable promises that are solely for the people of Israel. And there are other prophecies that may have a double fulfillment in both the church and Israel. Just because a certain Old Testament prophecy finds its fulfillment in the church does not mean that it cannot find its fulfillment in a future Israel. That's actually sound interpretive methods. All the dispensationalists would say that's baloney. I would disagree. The challenge is finding or developing a balanced hermeneutic, a balanced interpretation system, and a balanced redemption framework that embraces all of this and i'm going to close with this i'm sorry i went for so long i'm gonna close with this in the parable of the vineyard laborers matthew 20 verse 15 the master says am i not allowed to do what i choose with what belongs to me our salvation belongs to god it is a gift that he can freely choose to dispense to whoever and whenever 
If God wants to save Israel in mass at some future time, this is God's divine prerogative to do so. Matthew 20, verse 15. Do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. You know, when Jesus first gave this parable, it was the Jews that were first and the Gentiles that were excluded and hardened and last. But now the roles have been reversed. The salvation order of Romans 1.26 has been reversed by God's wisdom and election as revealed in Romans 11.26. I'm sorry, that's from my paper. You can read that on your own. The problem with being first is that the sinful nature of man tends to slip into pride when he enjoys a special place of privilege for too long without, without a proper perspective of God's grace and election. Pride is the primary reason why I pounce you again and again with the doctrine of predestination. For a privileged people that continue on too long without a proper view of God's election, they often slip into pride. So the warning of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles is clear. Do not be arrogant toward the, the branches, the Israel. Since Israel was judged and hardened, it's clear to me that many Christians who believe the traditional replacement theology has slipped into prideful attitudes. Perhaps it is time to heed Paul's warning. Just as Paul said, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. I think the church needs a balanced hermeneutic that honors the Jewish roots of our faith and a redemption framework that makes room for God's promises to Israel's future. So what should we do? Should we politically and monetarily support the state of Israel in the Middle East right now? And a lot of dispensationalists, they, they uh, contend for Christians. And, you know, people label them Christian Zionists. All these crazy Christian Zionists pumping in millions of dollars to build up the Jewish state. Or should we get involved with that? How are we, how are we to interpret that? Or, or should we support the Christian Palestinians? Those poor Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Christians who are being oppressed, who are being driven out of their land, who are poor. Shouldn't we support them? Doesn't the gospel go to them? And you know what, what my answer would be? Be careful. It's not a black and white issue. Those poor Palestinian Christians, the those poor Christian Palestinians, even though they are oppressed, even though they are poor, you know what? Talk to them and they have a strong anti-Semitism almost universally. And so as much as you might want to help them, you don't want to empower them in such a way that when they rise up, their only goal is to destroy Israel. You know what's significant about the, uh, the Arab uprisings? You know what I think? I thought, I thought, this is a move for democracy. That's what Americans were saying. Yeah! Come on, Egypt! Yeah, get out there and march! Come on! Come on, all the Arab nations! Get your democracy on! What's happened since then? Egypt has become more anti-Semitic than ever. A lot of Arab countries have become unstable. 
many of them turning to their Muslim roots for stability. And many of these Muslim groups, they have connections to the Hamas, which is their Hamas, their sole purpose is to destroy the state of Israel. And so what looked like a move for democracy, look out. It looks like it's just a setup for the end times. So what's my answer? Is be careful. Help the poor. Be compassionate to the Palestinian Christians. But at the same time, don't think that just because the Jewish state is rich and just the Jews are all rich and they have the strongest, one of the strongest militaries in the world, that that means you neglect praying for them. Because God has a purpose for his people still, the Jews. You know, in the future, God is going to move in such a way that the Jews are just going to bow their knee to Jesus. And wherever tribulation happens, like whenever the sequence is, Jesus returns. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful. I got to close with this because pastorally, this has been on my heart. I'm sorry I'm going so long. I told you I was going to go long. And so I told you I'd go 60 minutes. Well, I lied. I went like blah, blah, blah minutes. I went a whole long. But I got to close with this. This is what's been on my heart. A couple years ago, my paternal grandmother passed away. I grew up with her in Tegu. When I moved to America, she came and visited. When I visited Korea... She took care of me. In fact, I remember in Tegu, when I was like a three-year-old, I remember I, I crapped in my pants. <laughs> like, often. <laughs> you know who cleaned it up? My grandma. She'll, she'll slap me and say, Wait, wait, it's <laughs> Oh, my! I don't know why Korean kids do that. Did you do that? People, white people in Texas do that? No? It's good. <laughs> anyway, I, I, love, I love my grandma, and, but you know what? She wasn't a Christian. She wasn't a Christian, and uh, she actually embraced, like, Catholicism. But Catholicism in Daegu is very syncretistic. Uh, I know some Catholics, uh, they find Christ in the Catholic Church, especially in the Catholic Charismatic, Charismatic Movement. But uh, you go to Philippines, you go to very syncretistic versions of Catholicism, you will not find the gospel anywhere. Very difficult to find salvation. And although she embraced the syncretistic Catholicism, whenever I met her, I knew she had no idea who God is. And so I pray for her. From when I was a little kid, you know, when I became a Christian in fourth grade, I pray for my grandma. I pray for my grandma. I pray for my, when I became a pastor, I pray for her more. I did spiritual warfare. I bound those demonic powers that are veiling her eyes. I pray for a breakthrough. And a couple of years ago, she died without Christ. Now, I'm not afraid to work out the logical conclusions of what happened. According to the Christian faith, if a person dies... Without faith in Christ, their sins remain. And if their sin remains, then the wrath of God remains. 
and the way in which God has chosen to pour out that wrath is eternal punishment in a place called hell. I know there are other people in here. You have very similar stories. Well, it wasn't just your grandma. It was your dad. A brother who suddenly died in a car accident. A mother who took care of you all, all her life. And somehow through a friend, you, you, you found Christ, but she just never was convinced. How come the church never talks about that? It's hard. It's emotionally very difficult. What pastor wants to tell the congregation member, I'm sorry, but your grandma is in hell. And for a lot of people, they just don't deal with it. They don't think about it. And you know what? What I've noticed in Korean churches here in Korea and in, in America, you know what Korean churches do? They try to get their relative to pray the sinner's prayer. Sometimes they will take their mouth and move their mouth and say and force them to say the sinner's prayer. And I've heard of uncles and cousins on their deathbed. They receive Christ. So hallelujah, we can now have peace. Or a person was in a coma, but a person just so wishfully thinking believes that that person received Christ while in the coma. So they say, you know what? I think they're in a better place. And they find peace and comfort in that. Everyone wants to find peace and comfort in the salvation of their relatives. Even when it's hard to believe that that's what really took place. They still want to wishfully believe that. Because that's the only place that they find comfort. Is in the salvation of their relatives. But what about the clear thinkers? What about people like me who I know my grandma is not going to be waiting for me at the gates of heaven. When Jesus returns, I'm not going to see her in a place of paradise. For the clear thinkers like me, what, do I, what am I supposed to conclude? How do I relieve that tension? God, I pray for her. I did all that I could. I even tried to share the gospel. I gave her a Rick Warren book in Korean. I did everything I can to reach her. Why didn't you do your part, God? Isn't that what you want to say to God? Or some of you, maybe you lived a backslidden life when it happened. And you have immense guilt. And you think, man, it's because I was rebellious. It's because I wasn't living for the Lord that my relative died without Christ. That my best friend died without Christ. And you, and you hold that guilt over yourself your, the whole, your whole life. And you know what, people of God? As the end times come, these types of tensions may happen a lot more than you think you can handle. Because as the tribulation hits, war takes place, violence takes place, people are martyred, people are killed, people are killed for their faith, and other people are just killed along with them. All those people you pray for to come to Christ, you're not seeing every one of them come to Christ. Your faith, your trust in God's righteousness is going to be severely shaken. You're going to be like, how can I trust you, God? 
I prayed all this time. How could I trust you, God? Look at all, all my friends. Look at my relatives. What happened at the earthquake? And you know what? You're not the first one to think about these things. Christians throughout history have, faced with these, have been faced with these types of things. When black plagues hit, when wars come, when earthquakes hit, when volcanoes erupt, people perish. I had an NYU classmate who was, who was working for Morgan Stanley doing her vacation in Phuket, Thailand. Just sipping on a margarita by the, by the pool. One moment she was sipping her margarita, next moment she was gone. Because the tsunami hit. And didn't give her any warning. And from what I remember, I don't remember her knowing Christ. I was trying to evangelize to her well during my college years. You know what I'm trying to do for you? I'm trying to fast forward what you probably will face. Either in your lifetime or when the great tribulation hits. Your view of God's righteousness needs to be strong. It cannot just be on this fluffy Christianity of God loves all people. God loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. And God loves all people too. All the same, all people are God's children. That kind of simple logic and that simple kind of doctrine, it's not going to stand up when you see unsimple things taking place all over the world. And so I believe that's why the doctrine of election is so key. The doctrine of predestination is your only hope of an unshakable faith in God's righteousness. Because as much as I want to say to God, God, why did you fail to save my grandmother? As much as I want to say that, in light of election, in light of God's sovereignty and predestination, you know what I'm really saying to God? What I'm actually saying to God is quite offensive. I'm telling a God of mercy from whom I've received immense mercy for my own salvation and the salvation of so many people that I see in this room. I'm telling that God of mercy God, why weren't you merciful enough? If you feel like God's mercy is obliged to your relatives or to anyone else you love, you know what? You're not talking about mercy anymore. Mercy is not obliged. God gives it out of his own free will. That's what makes mercy, mercy. If God owed it to you, It will not be mercy. In fact, the only thing God owes to any person who has ever walked on earth and has sinned before him is justice. It's judgment. It's wrath. You want to talk about what God owes somebody? It's his wrath and judgment. So at the end of the day, I grieve. I mourn. I'm comforted by his presence. And then I say in my heart, God, I'm really sad that my grandma didn't come to know you. But I choose to trust your righteousness. And I continue to declare that you are merciful and you are gracious. You are loving 
and you are kind. I don't choose who comes to Christ or not. You do. And I have to be okay with that. And I choose to be okay with that. That needs to be your comfort, brothers and sisters. That might sound cold, it might sound harsh. Initially. But no. talking about a God who sent his son in human flesh to suffer and die on the cross the death of a villain the death of a murder convict you're talking to a God who has shown immense mercy and compassion to you and to many of your loved ones already he's not an apathetic God in heaven who said oh I just didn't choose her Now, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Now, I have a dad right now that does not know Christ. You would think the dad of your pastor would surely have a strong Christian faith. Well, he doesn't. And with his high blood pressure and with him getting older, I feel the urgency. Keep praying for him harder. Keep evangelizing to him more. But you know what? If he perishes without the gospel, I can't blame myself for not praying enough. Because that's not the reason why it happened that way. It's just God simply chose to have mercy upon me, a sinner. But for God, in his righteousness, he saw it fit to have judgment on my dad. But you know what? We don't know any of that. And so until your loved one is not on the earth anymore. You pray and you evangelize and you intercede for them with all of your heart. And then you deal with it if it doesn't happen. But let us also take a moment to rejoice for all the times it does happen. Maybe he doesn't do it for your father, your grandmother, but he's done it through you for someone else's grandmother. He's done it through you for your small group members, relatives. We just don't have a say in how all that unfolds. We can just pray. Let me close in prayer. Father, we just, we come before you, Lord. Humbled at your amazing mercy and grace. And we realize this grace is not so simple sometimes. It goes deep. Your grace is unsearchable. 
Your wisdom is beyond finding out. Father, as a church, as our covenant community and other churches, we approach the last days. We're not sure what and when and what the sequence will be like. But we know for sure that as your plans unfold, we desire to be a church that prays. We desire to be a church that is pure. We desire to be a church that is unshaken. When even our relatives that we pray for all our life does not know Christ. We desire to be a people that trusts in you, your sovereignty, your righteousness, your love at all times. Sometimes when these types of things happen, it's hard to believe that you are a good God. But Father, Lord, we want to see everything in the proper perspective. Help us to see how immensely merciful you actually are and how immensely good you have been to your people. Pray for comfort for all those who grieve or today fresh grief was reintroduced at the memory of a lost relative who did not know Christ. As it says in Isaiah 61, Pray you will comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Comfort and be fully present with all those who have experienced something similar like that. For such is the anguish that the Apostle Paul must have felt when he saw his own kinsmen, when he saw his fellow Jews Stoning him for preaching the gospel. Such anguish he must have felt. As he prayed for his own people. His own relatives. And they did, what, they did not come to Christ. Lord help us as the Apostle Paul. Also did. In all of this, Lord, give us revelation of your mystery and of your ways. That despite what we see happening, we can still trust and rejoice and celebrate your sovereignty, your purpose and election, your wisdom. Lord, we need this so bad, especially as the end times approaches, Lord. Strengthen your people, God, especially as the end times approaches, Lord. If there is no pre-trip rapture indeed, Lord, we need your grace. We need proper balanced perspective to endure and not only endure, be, but be victorious. How can a people that are offended continually be victorious before you, Lord? Root our theology, Lord, down deep, Lord. We ask it, Lord, today in Jesus' name.